We'll hear argument next in case 08538, Schwab v. Riley. Mr. Goldblatt. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The debtor in this case claimed in the third column of Schedule C a $10,718 exempt interest in her kitchen equipment. That claim of exemption was fully proper. The trustee did not object to it because it was unobjectionable. The debtor's position here is that because of what she wrote in the fourth column, where she estimated the value of the equipment as the same amount of the exemption, that her claim of exemption itself should be read to say something different from and greater than what it actually says. Mr. Goldblatt, I thought that what she said, I'm looking at Schedule C, property claimed as exempt. She lists as property claimed as exempt. C, attached list of business equipment. And then we have an inventory going for several handwritten pages of all these items of kitchen equipment. And that's what she says is the property claimed as exempt. With respect, Justice Ginsburg, that's incorrect. If you turn to her Schedule C, which is in the Joint Appendix at pages 57 and 58A, the first column is a description of the property, and the third column contains the value of the claimed exemption. The property claimed as exempt here is the $10,718 interest in the, the asset listed in column A. And the reason that's clear, Your Honor, is it's clear from the language of the statute itself, because the, the statutory language of 522L uh, provides that the debtor files a list of property that the debtor claims as exempt, and that unless a party in interest objects, the property claimed as exempt is exempt. 522L refers to the property claimed as exempt under subsection B. And subsection B, in turn, references subsection D, which is the basis for the claim of exemption here. And 522D, when it describes the exemption, says the following. The following property may be exempted. One, the debtor's aggregate interest not to exceed $18,450 in property. It goes, and it enumerates a series of exemptions. She, in, in her inventory, she gives uh, figures, and they add up to the amount that she's claiming. So she evidently thinks that those numbers will cover all of her business equipment. Justice Ginsburg, it may, that, that, that may well be true. She may, the debtor here may well have believed that the value of the equipment here was equal to the amount of the exemption. Um, but no one contends in any serious way that the, the trustee is required to object to the debtor's valuation of the equipment. After all — Mr. Goldblatt, this is, this is really my concern. I mean, it seems what she wants is her cooking equipment, not the money equivalent. And if the trustee had objected, she could have said, well, if they think that this cooking equipment is worth more than 
the value that I put down. I'll cut out the coffee maker. I'll cut out the microwave. But what I want is the equipment, not the dollar, dollars for it. Your Honor, the, the debtor here may well have wanted the equipment. The question here is, did she make a claim on her schedule that the equipment was itself exempt in kind? There are a number of ways that debtors can do that. They can write, I claim an exemption in the full amount. Here, take, take a debtor who is saying, look, all I want is the exemption that Congress gives me. I understand that all I'm entitled to here is a $10,718 interest in my equipment. Um, I think my equipment is worth that. If it turns out that I'm wrong and it's worth more, I don't want any more than the bankruptcy code gives me. Well, that would be a remarkable coincidence if her equipment happened to be worth exactly what Congress said she could exempt, which is a very odd way of reading what she's put in the schedule. We, Mr. Chief Justice, we think the most natural way to read what she's said in the schedule is that she's claiming exactly what she says, which is that she is claiming a $10,718 interest in the property. To get to See, I would have thought the most natural way of reading it is that she's claiming the equipment because she thinks that's the value of the equipment. If she wanted to claim the equipment itself as exempt, there were a number of ways that one could do that. She could say, I claim 100 percent interest in the equipment. I claim an in-kind interest. Here, it would be odd to read that because there is no suggestion that has been made by anyone that she has any entitlement to an in-kind exemption in the where, equipment. Where would she say that, 100 percent interest in the equipment? Where, would she say that in, in column three? In, in either column, yeah, yes. No, column, column three says value of claimed exemption. Debtors can certainly list in the schedule, they can list an asterisk and say, I claim an interest in the property itself. Here, the the cause — I mean, you say that, but, but boy, I wouldn't read — I wouldn't read the — I wouldn't read the the, the chart that way. There's a column that says value of claimed exemption. Correct. And the value of the claimed exemption here was $10,718, which is exactly what the trustee proposes to give her. Right. That claim of exemption was proper. In response to Justice Ginsburg's fair question, which is, what, what is a debtor to do here if she wants equipment itself? The debtor is surely entitled, Justice Ginsburg, to, to, if the trustee seeks to sell the equipment at auction, to participate in that auction and to credit bid her exemption. And no, no one disputes that. So if the trust, if the debtor wants to come to the auction and say, look, I'm bidding my exemption, and that will buy me as much of my equipment as it will buy me, um, the debtor is fully entitled to do that. And then that- you're going through all the administrative expenses of having an auction where <coughs> if the trustee had tipped her off, it would be like amending your pleading. Well, in fairness, in, in this case itself, the trustee happened to come to the Section 341 meeting and say, I believe that there's value here for the estate. I think there's value in excess of — And she was so so upset, she said, I'll get out of the bankruptcy. I want my — Cooking equipment. That's it right, was very clear that that's what the debtor wanted. And, and it was equally clear that the trustee took the position that she was entitled to the, the exemption that Congress permits, and no more than that. And the debtor didn't say. The question is whether the question is whether the trustee had to make an objection when it seemed really as clear as could be that what she was seeking was to keep her equipment, not to get the 
um, some monetary equivalent for it. With, with, with respect, Justice Ginsburg, to imagine that you had a debtor who, who came into court and said, look, I believe my equipment is worth something equal to the amount that is permissible, that I may permissibly claim as exempt. Um, but I don't mean to make an improper in-kind exemption. I don't, I don't want more value than Congress intends me to keep. My, if it turns out to be worth more, that belongs to my creditors. All I want is what I'm entitled to by statute. Um, that debtor would have no alternative way to express that, that but to do exactly what this debtor did here. And we think the most plausible way to read it is, consi- is, to, in, is to read it to have this debtor be expressing an intention that is consistent with law and not one that is improper. There is, there is no basis under which this debtor is entitled to keep more than a $10,718 interest. And under the ordinary presumption that you presume parties — Well, then she has, on your reading, her claim is improper because she's claiming more than she's entitled to. If her claim is improper, then the trustee has an obligation to object to it. Justice Ginsburg, it's only improper if it's read to mean something different from what it says. What she said here in the schedule is, I claim an exempt interest of $10,718 in the equipment, and I believe the equipment is worth that amount. The question is, should that be read to be making an improper claim that the equipment itself is exempt in kind, a claim that would be would be clearly improper. Or when I look at that number, I, maybe I, I don't understand this, so maybe you or your adversary can clarify it for me. But when I look at that number, it seems to me there are two ways to interpret it. One is that she is saying, I want the full amount that I'm allowed by law. And the other is that I want the value of my equipment, and it just so happens to total exactly to the dollar, the amount that I'm entitled to by law. Am I correct that those are the two possible readings of that? That, That's that's certainly — we think that that's right. And the question is, which of those is the more plausible reading? Right. And we we think that, that for a number of reasons, the more plausible reading is to say, all I want is what the law permits me. The the principal reason is that as a general proposition, you wouldn't presume someone — to be making a claim for which there would be no legal basis. And in any of Except that the, that the last column does, is very clearly entitled current market value of property without deducting exemptions. There's no way to read that last figure of 10,718 except as her assessment of the market value of her That's exactly right, Justice Scalia. But the critical point is that there is no requirement that any trustee come in and object to a valuation if the valuation is improper. Imagine she had — Can you — can you — that was what you just said, no requirement that the trustee object to valuation. One of the briefs, it may have been wrong, but it's the NACBA brief at page 27, said challenges to valuation — are the most common types of objections to exemptions. Let me, let me ex- explain this for a moment, if I may. Imagine the debtor here had listed the value at $15,000 and her, her exempt interest at 10718 In that case, the debtor, the, the trustee would surely be entitled to sell 
the asset. The, the debtor themselves acknowledges that on page 30 of the respondent's brief. In that case, what the value that, that the equipment would obtain would be whatever a willing buyer and willing seller would pay. It could be $15,000. It could be $30,000. It could be $130,000. And the fact that the actual value of what, what a buyer would pay for it was different from the debtor's valuation would be of no moment whatever value the trustee was able to obtain well, for the case, asset. In that case, uh, I guess there wouldn't be a, a, a lawsuit. No, that's exactly right. I mean, in that case, the debtor is never going to object. So we're no, never going that's to exactly that right. But, but the point here is that the, 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 there, there is no requirement that the, the, the — when a debtor files an individual bankruptcy case on Schedule B, the debtor lists the valuation, their estimated valuation, of all of their assets. Um, there is absolutely no requirement in the bankruptcy code, the bankruptcy rules, or anywhere else that a trustee go through and say whether they agree or disagree with the debtor's posited valuation. Instead, what a trustee does is they liquidate the assets, they generate the value that is there, and they distribute that value to creditors. Well, they don't always liquidate the asset if they, if they elect to if, if everybody agrees that they get the asset itself, they don't have to sell it. That, that's exactly right. The trustee may determine to abandon an asset to what, the what debtor you're, if what there's you're no. What you doing here? You you argue that uh, ambiguities are construed against the person that made the form. I think that's a little um, harsh when the trustee is a repeat player and knows and, and knows the rules. Well, on the other hand, I think what you have going for you is that the trustee is going to always be at risk that the uh, uh, asset is worth more than what's listed and is going to have to take steps to, to, to value in, in, every, in every case. Although in, in this case, it, it, it's clear that she, she knew that the Honda was worth more. She was only claiming $2,900, $2,950 on the Honda. That's right. And that was subject to a security interest here. And, and if you take that together with — and the, the, the kitchen equipment comes next, and, she, and the value is the same in each column. So that indicates that she was claiming the full value. In, with, with respect to the, the automobile, uh, there's, there's a, a claim of exemption, and the rest is subject to a security interest. He, here, I mean, the, the critical point is if a debtor wants to, to, to put to the, to the issue and say, listen, um, I really want to keep the equipment itself. I don't think there's any value here for the estate. There is a statutory mechanism to address that. Section 554B says quite clearly that if a, if a party in interest believes that there is an asset as to which there is inconsequential value, they can seek an order compelling the bankruptcy, the, compelling the trustee to abandon that asset to the debtor. So there's, for, for, I mean, Justice Ginsburg's question, there is a mechanism for addressing the concern that Your Honor has with a debtor who wants a determination that they keep a particular asset. My concern is keeping it simple, giving fair notice to people. She's got the same amount under exempt with the last two columns. A rule is proposed. It says when the Two columns have the same amount. That's a clue to the trustee that the debtor is claiming all of the, that particular property. That's a nice, simple rule. Tells the trustee when he has to object and 
at the end of the matter. With, with respect, Justice Ginsburg, a, a, a simpler rule would be that if a debtor wants to say, I have an in-kind exemption in an asset, the debtor should say that. They should use a term that is understood to mean but that. But it's not in-kind in the sense that she keeps the asset no matter what. Well, that's exactly what the debtor is contending here. She, the debtor here is saying that this, this said that even if I'm She's wrong the, about the value. She's contending that she would like to keep her cooking equipment and she was entitled to notice before it's going to be sold at an auction. With respect, Justice Ginsburg, that's not right. Here the debtor was told at the 341 meeting that the trustee intended to sell it. Um, her claim is that even if, even if he can get more value than she said it was worth, she keeps all of that value, regardless of what it's worth, because, she, because her schedule told us unequivocally that she got to keep it regardless of its actual then, value. Then her claim is wrong, her claim is objectionable, and but, the trustee should have made an objection. But the best reading of her schedule is not to make such a claim, but rather to read her schedule to, to mean what it says, which is that she claimed to have a $10,718 exemption in the property. And insofar as the property is worth more than that, that, that's an, that, that, that is a question of valuation, which isn't the subject of an obligation to raise an objection. To also, to the point of simplicity, Justice Ginsburg, if I may, the, the, the virtue of the rule that we urge here is that, that it, it does provide for simplicity. A debtor can clearly put the trustee on notice. The consequence of the debtor's rule would be to require trustees, whenever schedules happen to use the same number, to come in and file pro forma objections. And it doesn't seem that there's any reason as a matter of bankruptcy policy or statutory construction to simply require more paperwork to get to the same result. Has that happened in the two circuits that apply a rule similar to this, the six and the what, what, I, what I understand, uh, Justice Sotomayor, is that, that the answer to that is yes, and that in the Third Circuit, following this decision, that trustees are filing those kinds of pro forma objections. Why? I mean, you know, you sit down with the creditors and you look at the list. You try to work things out. That meeting goes on as long as you want. And if it appears there's an argument about valuation, you file an objection. And, and if and it appears everybody can work everything out, fine. That's, that's the problem. The, the question is what, what, what is the rule where, where there remains disagreement? And as the rule is, and that's what it's about, the rule is about where you object, trustee objects to the list. And, the and list. that's called Schedule C. And have an objection to the list, then it says, here's what you do, trustee. Meet with the creditors, try to work it out, and if, in fact, 30 days thereafter, and you don't need any more time, so you don't ask the judge for more time, file an objection. Yeah, Justice Breyer, the, it, it's just different from what the, what the statute says. What the statute says is that in the absence of an objection, the property claimed as exempt becomes exempt. And if you look at 522D and see its description of the property that becomes exempt, that language is clear that it is the debtor's interest up to a dollar amount in an asset. The term property here is subject to monetary caps. It's not the asset itself. And the statutory language in that regard couldn't be clearer. If it's not the asset itself and it's just about money, here I have a piece of property and it wouldn't matter whether it was a um, case of widgets or my grandmother's diamond ring. But Congress, by this is a peculiar list it has. It has personal jewelry, 
tools of trade, it sounds like, even though those have a dollar cap, it sounds like Congress said these are the kinds of things a debtor would want to keep in kind. Well, but those have always been subject, as this Court explained in Owens versus Owens, those types of, of, of assets have always been subject to monetary caps. <laughs> um, and the same is true here in 522D makes that clear. Insofar as the debtor would like to keep it, the debtor is entitled to credit bid at an auction. I see my time has expired. Well, thank you, Mr. Goldblatt. I'll afford you rebuttal time. I appreciate that, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Wall. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The government is not saying that it's a coincidence that these numbers in the third and fourth columns are the same. It is a common practice. A debtor will often estimate what she believes to be the market value of her property and then divvy up her wild card across items in hope of, hopes of keeping them. The government's and petitioner's only point is that where a debtor does that, as Respondent did here, she's still claiming the fixed exemption of what she believes to be the market value. Now, I take your concern, Justice Ginsburg, that this might be unfair to debtors who wouldn't be tipped off. That is, is not true here, where the trustee came to the creditor's meeting and said, I construe your exemption as limited, and I think the property is worth about $7,000 more, and I intend to sell it. And at that point, it, a, a debtor who really believed that her schedule claimed full value would, it seems to me, have said, you're misreading my schedule. She didn't do that. She didn't do that until after the 30-day period had run when the trustee moved to sell the property. Now, but what she, she did do, she said, oh, that unsettles me so much that I'm going to withdraw from this bankruptcy proceeding. Beyond anything, I want to keep that, that property. That's right. But she, she moved. She did walk in. She didn't say, you're misreading my schedule. She said, I don't want you to sell the property if, indeed, it's worth more than the exemption I've claimed. And so I want to dismiss my bankruptcy, which she doesn't have a right to do under Chapter 7. She has to show cause under Section 707A. The bankruptcy court found that she had not shown cause, and the debtor didn't appeal that determination, but which the, is not but, before this court. But the bankruptcy court did that simultaneously with saying, and I'm going to deny the trustee's motion to have an auction. That's right. And on remand, it would certainly be open to her to attempt to convince the bankruptcy court again that she had shown cause under 707 to dismiss. I think the government's point is that there is a process for sale. So even beyond the facts of this case, when the trustee wants to sell property, he has to give 20 days' notice to the debtors and the creditors under Section 363 of the Code and Rule 2002. So if the trustee here had not even said anything at the creditors' meeting but had moved to sell, he would have had to give notice to the debtor, who at that point could always amend her schedules under Rule 1009. If she had any exemption left to claim, she could walk in and say, I'm going to amend my schedule, and I'm going to increase my exemption because I underestimated the property value. The reason she didn't and couldn't do that here is because she had maxed out her wild card. But it's, you know, the, the, indeed, but even on remand. What she could have done is, is trim some items from the list. And she still could on remand. Even on remand, she could walk in and amend her schedule and say, I'm going to itemize exactly the equipment that I want to keep with my wild card, and I'm going to say which of my kitchen equipment I want to keep, with my $10,225, and which I don't. So it's not that there's nothing about petitioner's approach that denies the debtor the fresh start to which she's entitled under the code. She, she can always claim right up to the legal limits. I mean, that what sounds very complicated. I, 
I mean, the thing that sort of persuaded me so far on this is this is what Collier says the other side, what all the bankruptcy judges, Hambro's a bankruptcy judge, this is a simpler thing. Well, Look at the procedural rule. It's just what I said. It says if you have an objection to the list of property, the list of property is C, okay? So here's what you do, trustee. Sit down with the creditors. <laughs> See if there's really an argument. Now, if there's no argument, fine. They'll let you do what you want. If there is an argument, and it has to do with that list, C, particularly valuation, which is what these things are all about, then file your objection. That's so simple. And, and it seems in most places they do it. So why do we want to run around Robin's barn or something to get somewhere where you get too much simpler? Well, there are a number of different questions there, Justice Breyer. But w- with all respect, that is not what the statute and the rules say. What the statute and the rules say is if you have an objection to the property claimed as exempt on the list. And as a historical matter over time, Schedule C has required debtors to put additional information besides their exemptions. Rule 403 doesn't say that. My Rule 403 says a party in interest may file an objection to the list of property claimed as as exempt within 30 days after the meeting. That's right. It says the list. So that's where I think you're becoming awfully legalistic to try to distinguish between the list and the property in A and B. I mean, what do you, these are about valuation, says Collier. That's all we're interested in. Well, it's just the list of property claimed as exempt. So, for instance, for nearly the first 100 years after they set up the system in 1898, on Schedule C and its predecessors, the debtor put down the location and present use of property. But no one thought that the location was part of the claim of exemption, such that if the trustee believed the property was in one place than another, he had to object. The idea was, we'll provide some useful information to the trustee beyond the claim of exemption, so that if he wants to file a turnover complaint to get the property into the estate, he knows where it's located. But it just isn't true as a historical or logical matter that everything that shows up on Schedule C is part of the claim of exemption. Is it also true, uh, tell me about this, one of my concerns is, is that trustees simply don't have time in every case to have a creditor's meeting and go through every asset. If they did, then Justice Breyer's suggestion, would they sit down and talk about all this stuff, would, 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 would be fine. Um, am I right or wrong in making that empirical assumption? I mean, I just don't know. I, I think that's entirely fair. That they do have to have the creditor's meeting, so they do have to, you know, within 20 to 40 days of the filing of the petition. But I think what will happen on respondents' approach as a practical matter is the world will look no different. It will just have a lot more litigation. Whenever the numbers in columns three and four match up, the trustee will file a pro forma objection or extension request. Cases will proceed exactly as they do now. Property can be sold. Some will be returned to the debtor and some will not. He has to, otherwise he's at risk uh, that it might be worth 400000 or whatever. Exactly. And I think the reason that it's odd to set up that kind of a presumption is because you're basically presuming that the debtor is acting to claim an exemption in kind to which she's not entitled under the code. So what does she put down if she thinks this is what the property uh, uh, is worth, but she doesn't know for sure? I mean, I don't know how you'd accurately value a bunch of kitchen equipment. What is she supposed to do? Well, the debtor would do exactly what she did here. And if the trustee went to sell and she had remaining exemption left, she could come in and amend her schedules and say. But that goes through, I think, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, you have to go through a long process if you're going to have an auction. And for this 
sole proprietorship, it seems like a waste of money and time. Well, if the debtor actually wanted to claim, say, full value or 100 percent of value, there are debtors that commonly do that. Since at least Taylor 20 years ago, debtors on the form have been writing down in the third column. Well, that's right. I mean, this is a government form. And you say, even though it says value of the claimed exemption and current market value, that these uh, debtors should know, oh, you should put in, as your friend said, put in an asterisk and write something else in there. I don't even think it has to be an asterisk. It's, it's Debtors commonly will put in on these forms where they want to claim full value, even if they're not entitled to it under the code, full value, 100 percent of value. The debtor and Taylor wrote down unknown, some contingent term that places the trustee unnoticed that says, hey, whatever the value That's of the property is. much less informative than it. she said. I mean, here she, she has one list showing what she paid for it. She makes her best guess. It's you're suggesting that she would be entitled to the notice if she put down unknown, value unknown, or value 100 percent. So you're, t- you, you're on your theory, in order to do what she obviously wants to do, preserve her kitchen equipment, she has to give no information or inaccurate information. If she said, I think what you're saying, if she said 100 percent instead of saying what she thought was the, the value, or she said unknown, she would be entitled to notice from, in, to an objection from the trustee. But because she has <clears throat> tried her best to put down what the form calls for, she doesn't get any objection from the trustee. Well, I, I think, Justice Ginsburg, the debtor does have a duty to report the market value in the fourth column, what she believes it to be. But the third column is, of course, her claim. And that, is that where she would write 100 percent, in the third column rather than the fourth? Well, no, I should write in the third column, because what she'd be saying is the third column is just subjective. It's just what you want to claim. And under value of claimed exemption, she'd say 100 percent of value. And then in the fourth column, she would make an estimate as to what she believed that value to be. And in the event that she underestimated, she can always come in and amend her exemptions. I think it would be odd to read a form where she cited statutory provisions that allow her to claim interest up to a dollar cap, and then she's put down definite and fixed numbers to say to the trustee, you should assume, despite the statutory text she's citing and the numbers she's giving you, that she's claiming an unauthorized in-kind exemption, despite the very statutory provisions on which she's relying as the basis for her exemption. Well, well now, wait. Why, why would the uh, trustee uh, object? I mean, he would still be objecting to the valuation. You, you say that he has no, no obligation to object to the valuation. But if she writes 100 percent of value in the third column, that's what she's claiming. And then values it at, uh, at something above the exemption, right? Above the permissible objection? He's still objecting to the valuation, isn't he? No? Just Scalia, wherever the debtor lists a contingent term in the third column, whether it's unknown or 100 percent of value, the trustee absolutely has to object. It, what, but where the trustee doesn't object is where the debtor does what she did here and lists a fixed sum. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Wall. Mr. Brunstad? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice Ginsburg, your reading of the schedules is completely accurate. There was nothing more that Ms. Riley could have done 
to indicate her intent to exempt the property in full. The bankruptcy court looked at this. The bankruptcy judge sees thousands of these kinds of schedules and made that determination. But it said in full. You can't say she's done nothing more. She put in full. Well, Justice Kennedy, the form is of value. Justice Kennedy, the form doesn't call for that. The form calls oh, for a list. No, you said that there's nothing else she could do. And I said, of course, there's something else she could do. In, in, in Taylor, the case you cite, they put unknown. <coughs> that's well, correct. I, mean, I understand your position, but you can't say there's nothing else she could have done. That's, that, that's the issue in the case. Yes, Justice Kennedy, but consistent with the form and the information the form requests, she completely and accurately provided the information the form requests. And she, as the bankruptcy court looked at this and said, this is, she's claiming the property in full. The district court looked at this. The Court of Appeals looked at this, all to the same conclusion. Now, I think it's important to underscore the purpose of the statute and the rules. They address a very practical problem. We need to know right away at the beginning of the case, is this property the debtor gets to keep, or is this property of the estate which the trustee can sell? We need to know this because under Section 363B, the trustee cannot sell property if it is not property of the estate. And if the property is claimed as exempt and nobody files an objection, it is exempt under 522L. The trustee cannot sell it. So if it turns out that this business equipment was worth $100,000 and the trustee looks at it and says, oh, she's only claiming, you know, less than she's entitled, 10000 and doesn't object, she gets that dramatic windfall. Just so I'm clear, Chief Justice Roberts, if she claims that she $15,000, but she puts a value of $100,000, is that Oh, no, no. She's, she's — and it may be even in good faith or, or, or bad faith, depending on the rule we, we adopt. But she gets that incredible bonus because it turns out her business equipment is worth a lot more than she put down. Well, if she undervalues her equipment, for a hundred years, Chief Justice Roberts, that has been grounds for objection. For a hundred years, the practice Well, this, the in. trustee doesn't know. He doesn't know. He looks at it and says, oh, that sounds like kitchen equipment might be worth that, and so he doesn't object. What you're doing is, I think Justice Kennedy pointed out, you're requiring the trustee to object to everything, lest he lose the $100,000 that it turns out this is worth. Not quite, Chief Justice Roberts, and here's why. The trustee gets the form. And then there is the meeting of creditors, and the trustee gets to ask questions before the deadline actually occurs. Here the trustee went and asked somebody else, do you think this is worth more than she's claiming? And apparently somebody said, perhaps it is. Then the, the trustee can ask the questions of the debtor directly, and if the debtor, if the trustee needs more time, the trustee can do one of two things, move for an extension of time to object, or simply adjourn the meeting of creditors. The, the timing is completely in the trustee's control. They have plenty no, of time. No, but the point is this, that drags out the whole process. Um, you're imposing a burden on the trustee. He loses everything if he doesn't uh, object. And uh, I think the idea is that these things move as quickly as you can, and you don't want the trustees, you know, I may be severely prejudiced, the creditors might, if I don't object. So I'm going to object to everything. We'll sort it out later. Yes, Your Honor, but that's what the statute does. It poses the burden on the trustee. It, the rule, Rule 4003, imposes the burden on the trustee to object if the trustee has any grounds for thinking what the debtor has done is improper. Now, these schedules are signed under penalty of perjury. There are criminal sanctions under 18 U.S.C. Section 152 and 157 if the debtor is engaged in fraud. There are penalties under Section 727 or 707. The case can be dismissed. The debtor can lose her discharge. This is very serious affair, stating this information. The debtor here very thoughtfully itemized all of the property 
She filled out all the information in the form, and she did something else, Chief Justice Roberts. On page 28A of her schedules, she checked a box that's required. And that box that the debtor require, uh, is, is supposed to check basically tells the trustee, this is a no-asset case. There's not any value left over for anybody else after you account for my exemptions. It's very clear from the box she checked off, from the information that she provided, she was claiming the property in full, the very property that she wanted, her tools of trade to engage in her business. Again, thousands of these forms are done. Here, the bankruptcy court looked at this and said she was exempting the property in full. The trustee knows this. The trustee sees thousands of forms. He had the information that he claims forms the basis of his objection well before his deadline passed, yet he allowed the 30-day period to go by without presenting an objection. Well, when she put down the figure $10,718 on page 58A of, of the joint appendix, what did she mean by that? In the last column, Justice yeah. Alito, she meant that the value she claimed in full of her property was what she was claiming as exempt, the entirety she of the property. She meant that was, she had, she had figured out the value of the property and her estimation of its fair market value was $10,718. Yes, she very carefully listed it and a debtor in bankruptcy. It wasn't 10717 it wasn't 10719 it was 10718 that's what she meant? That was her valuation of the equipment, Justice Well, it's not a realistic valuation. Nobody thinks that that's an honest valuation of the equipment. It's simply adding up the, uh, the exemption she was entitled to. No, Justice Scalia, because she didn't exhaust it. it, it her, her, her valuation just happened to be exactly the amount that the two exemptions she had would add up to. No, Justice Scalia, she did not exhaust her exemption availability. She had additional exemption availability left over after she took for her equipment. She detailed, she listed the assets, she listed a value, and under our law, debtors in bankruptcy who own property are considered experts with respect to the valuation of their own property. Shane versus Shane, 891F2nd at 872. The owner of property is competent to testify as to its value, is competent to testify to it, here, the trustee offered nothing. There's nothing in the record to rebut her valuation that she swore under penalty of perjury was accurate. She didn't, again, Justice Scalia, she had more exemptions she could have used. And that, that, that's, a, that's a totally different question. It's just, it is, your submission is that it is a, a pure coincidence that her good faith estimation of the current market value of this property just happened to add up to the dollar to the amounts that she was entitled to exempt under the specific statutory provisions that she cited in the previous column? No, Justice Alito, because 10718 is not her max. That's not the maximum amount of value that she could have claimed. She properly did what all debtors have to do. They are required to do this under the forms. They are required to inventory their property in Schedule B. They are required in Schedule C to state a value if, in fact, they know it. And now, in good faith. Wait, can you elaborate on this uh, additional? She, you said she could have listed an, uh, something that came to a higher number. Are you talking about the part of the leftover of the wild card exemption that she, she used it for food, didn't she? She used it for <coughs> perishable food items. Um, she didn't have to use it for perishable food items. Oh, but she was maxed out. Once she used it for that, she was maxed out. 
but she wanted to have her cake and eat it too. She wanted to get the exemption for the food, and she wanted to get the exemption for the for the equipment. And so it just so happened that the equipment valuation added up to precisely what was left over after she took the exemption for the for the food. Actually, the other way around, Justice Scalia. She valued the equipment first, then she determined she had leftover. Um, leftover exemption ability, and she applied it to additional items. But, but how do you know that from the form? Uh, I mean, I, I, n- number one, I think both sides have, have, have an argument as to what the form means. I don't think it's a little clear-cut. As I say, I'm looking for some kind of a rule to tilt the case one, one way or the other. I, I don't put a lot of credence in the fact that she, the ambiguities are construed against her. I am con- concerned that in every case, under your rule, the trustee is at risk unless he makes an objection. And I think that's just going to make bankruptcy seedings much more protracted and, and much more complex. Actually, I think, Justice Kennedy, the opposite. After Taylor, after this Court's decision in Taylor, <coughs> trustees understood if they had a valuation objection, if they had concern that the debtor might be getting a windfall, they needed to make an objection. Well, but there and the, the, the problem was triggered when they put in the word unknown. That's correct, Justice Kennedy, but that was an appropriate thing to say for that particular asset, an unliquidated lawsuit. When we're talking about tangible properties, such as cooking equipment, where you can figure out, you look at the pot and you have an idea of what it's worth, you are required to state that amount. Now, I think, Justice Kennedy, a, a, a good um, rule of decision is, or a good principle of decision here, is that the exemptions are part of the fresh start in bankruptcy, and we construe exceptions to that fresh start against creditors, against the trustee. Do you have any sense of how it works in practice? I'm a little worried by uh, Justice Kennedy's question, because the government says in practice what's been happening is that in most places the trustees don't, ex- they don't object to these kinds of valuations problems. And now suddenly when the rule has changed in some circuit, they do object as a matter of form, which is unnecessary paperwork. The impression I had from reading Collier and, 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 uh, was the, the opposite was so, that, that, uh, uh, normally, uh, when you had the trust, the creditor's meeting, things were appeared, what was a problem, what wasn't, and the creditor would then file an objection, the trustee would then file an objection. Well, what is the case? How, how does the practice work? I'm, I'm pretty uncertain. I'm not a bankruptcy expert. Yes, Justice Breyer, there has not been an avalanche of pro forma objections being filed. Yeah, but how did it work normally? For years and years, you'd go into a committee meeting of creditors, and they'd get into an argument about the valuation. I'm sure that happened. Yes. And when that happened, did trustees file objections within 30 days, or didn't they? Yes, Am- Justice, yes, you, Justice Breyer. How do we know that? I mean, I was impressed by Hambro. Isn't he the judge here? In the, in the Court of Appeals, yes, Your Honor. He's and a he former had been a bankruptcy, <laughs> so I thought maybe he knows. Certainly. Now, I don't know who knows, because I'm worried the government does look into this, and somebody's telling them who knows. It's the opposite. Just, Justice Breyer, under the rules, the trustee has the burden of objecting if the trustee has any basis for objection, including valuation. And, but the trustee has to have a good-faith reason for objecting. And how that is determined is the trustee looks at the schedules, asks questions at the meeting of creditors, a Section 341 meeting, and then if the trustee has any objection at all, present it. If the trustee doesn't present it, you move on. We have, finality is very important now, here. Under your rule, the trustee has 30 days to get this good faith basis. Does that mean that he or she has to get a valuation on everything that's listed at full value? 
that that is really the burden we're talking about. It's not the burden of filing a piece of paper that says I want an exemption or even one that says I have an objection. It's what it takes to support that objection and how much effort goes to that activity. Yes, Justice Sotomayor, and the trustee has had that burden for about a 100 years. And, and the, under the former Bankruptcy Act, they had much shorter deadlines, 20 days, 15 no, days. No, th- th- there's a huge difference between a rule that says you don't have to actually go after this information in a formal way. If someone's claiming only the exempt amount, mm-hmm. then I'll go ahead and I'll administer the estate, and over time I'll talk informally to people and get a sense of whether the valuation is right or not. But I won't actually have to get a formal appraisal because I'll just use my judgment. Your rule would require something else. They would have to get the appraisal to lodge the request for an extension or to lodge the request for an objection. But they'd have to do that in their motion to sell anyway, Justice Sotomayor. And also, in most cases, it's going to be simple. The most common asset that this is about is a car. You take the car and you check the book value of the car, and the trustee can do a simple, easy, expedient comparison. It's a little more complicated. You mean in every single case where an asset is sold, there has to be a valuation beforehand? In a situation where the debtor claims the property is exempt, yes. And here's why, Justice Kennedy, because the trustee again if, can If only he claims the whole property is exempt. Well, if the debtor claims the whole property is exempt, then it's not property of the estate unless the trustee interposes a timely and successful objection because Section 362 of the Bankruptcy Code, which authorizes sales, only specifically authorizes sales of property of the estate. And if someone claims property as exempt, if no objection is interposed under 522L, then the property claimed as exempt My, my is question exempt. was, you know, I, I thought I understood your remarks to say any time there's a sale, there has to be a valuation before, or an appraisal before the sale. If, in fact, the debtor claims the property as exempt, that's correct. Unless the debtor concedes, the trustee can sell it. That has to happen anyway, Justice Kennedy. Do we know but, what, what but is that, the, 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 the very fact that, it's for, that, that there's going to be a sale may indicate uh, that your premise is not true most of the time. Uh, no, Justice Kennedy, and here's why. Because the statute, for example, points that the court is going to determine in the first instance whether the objection claim is valid if, if there is, in fact, an objection. How do we know this? Because Section 522A says value is determined as of the date the debtor files for bankruptcy. We do not have sales to determine whether, in fact, the property is what it's worth. We determine whether the, uh, the, the claim of exemption is valid first. There's a judicial determination of value. It's geared towards the date of the petition date. Why? Because Congress understood that debtors want this property, not just a check from the trustee. It's part and parcel of their fresh start. The, as this Court explained in Rousey and in Owen, that the fresh start policy embraces the exemption. Well, wait a I'm very confused because of your answer to Justice Sotomayor. I thought what you were saying, she said, well, you only have 30 days, you get all this value. That doesn't say very much. You said, well, you, 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 you used to have less. I'm sorry, Justice You Justice. used to have less time, which isn't much of an answer, but it's something. Uh, now, uh, I, I would have thought you were going to say, but it's 30 days from the creditor's meeting ending, and that's a movable feast. It could last five years. You could keep postponing it. You can go to the judge and say, judge, uh, give me an extension, which he'll do. So there's no problem here, but you didn't say that. 
So the fact that you didn't say that suggests to me you're not certain about what this practical impact is. I am they certain. They are certain. I would say that, Justice Breyer. I am certain about that. I've just, in answering one question, then taken off to another one. I didn't get All right. How long do these creditors' meetings last? How easy are they to postpone? How, how easy is it for the trustee to get this uh, information together during the creditors' meeting, et cetera, et cetera? Where do I look to find out the answer to that question? Justice Breyer, the practical reality is that there are over a million bankruptcy cases that are filed a year. Most of those are Chapter 13 or Chapter 7 cases, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And that's why the box that's checked on page 28A is a key piece of information for the trustee. When the debtor says, this is basically a no-asset case, after you take account of my exemptions, there's no property left over for unsecured creditors, the trustee looks at that. And as a practical matter, the trustee makes a judgment, a judgment call. Hmm, I look at all the things. Does it look right? If I feel like I need to ask questions, I will ask them at the meeting of creditors, which is what happened here. If the trustee then is still suspicious in some way, then the trustee can seek an appraisal. And if the trustee wants to get that appraisal, then the trustee can ask for additional time to do it. If the court thinks that there's perhaps merit to it, the trustee will give uh, the court will give the trustee additional time. Here, I thought that the trustee got the appraisal before the creditors' meeting because at the creditors' meeting he said to her, "You put down what ten thousand? I have an estimate. It says seventeen thousand." Yes. It, the facts of this case are exactly that, Justice Ginsburg. The trustee here before the meeting of creditors went and talked to an auctioneer. In the ordinary situation, it'll happen a little bit differently, where the trustee will look at the schedules, and perhaps before the meeting of creditors, a trustee might inquire with somebody else, but oftentimes the trustee might ask questions at the meeting of creditors, and then if the trustee wants to, if the trustee thinks it's worth it to get an appraisal, then the trustee will ask for, for the additional time to do the, do the appraisal by either asking the court for an extension or by adjourning the meeting of the creditors. But it's a very important at the beginning of the case There's a very important finality question here, finality principle. The debtor needs to know as soon as possible, and this is why we have an objection deadline, the debtor needs to know as soon as possible, is this my property? Can I take this cooking equipment and can I use it? Am I the one who's to insure it? Can I conduct my business? Can other creditors lend me money now, now that I'm going through bankruptcy and have my discharge? Or is this something that the trustee is going to take and sell? That is why we have this objection deadline to basically say to the trustee, if you have any objections whatsoever about the debtor keeping this property, whether their value or the statutory basis under 522D is incorrect, whatever reason it may be, make your objection and we'll have a quick determination by the court. It cannot be true, as the trustee would like it, that the trustee can sell at any particular point in time in the future without having to make an objection. Do we know... What is the division among bankruptcy judges on this issue? I mean, you are urging that when those columns three and four match, that's a tip-off that the debtor is claiming the entire property is exempt. Do we know what is the the land among bankruptcy judges? Not precisely, Justice Ginsburg, because many of these issues are resolved by unpublished orders that it's very difficult to evaluate and, and get, get a hold of. But I think, by and large, the vast majority of bankruptcy courts follow Taylor in this, in this area and will say, well, when you list the value of the asset, if the trustee has an objection as to value, then the trustee must make the objection. If the trustee doesn't make you know, the objection — Once again, Taylor had the word unknown, and this doesn't, and that's the problem. Yes, Justice Kennedy, so the courts have to apply — the holding in Taylor to a slightly different factual context, 
But most bankruptcy courts say this is really the same situation. Because after all, in Taylor, what the trustee was saying was that I think the debtor is getting too much, is getting too much at the end of the day. And same thing here. The trustee is saying, I think the debtor is getting too much. It may be worth more. But if the debtor thinks there's a problem with the valuation, again, make an objection, because we need to have that finality. Finality was a key concept in — You mean if the trustee thinks there's a problem? Yes, Justice Kennedy. Thank you for correcting me. If the trustee thinks there is a problem, the trustee has to make an objection. We get that finality taken care of, and then Counsel, we get in, in what's interesting is that all of the circuit, or most of the majority, have not announced the fixed rule. The rule they've said is it depends on the circumstances. And uh, so it appears to me that most of the courts are saying to us, we don't want a default rule because we have to see what has happened and see what has happened between the parties to determine in one situation rather than another what the intent was. It's not an irrational rule. Um, why shouldn't we be considering that as an alternative? Because once we make an announcement like the one that you're proposing, it is an inducement to undervalue your property for a debtor, because in the hopes that an overly worked trustee won't have either the time or opportunity or, or wherewithal to understand that the value is off and that they're going to lose something that the estate is entitled to. I can see that, Justice Sotomayor, but I think that there are much worse incentives with the trustee's rule and much worse problems, much greater harm to the statutory scheme. Now, your, your Honor's question about these Court of Appeals decisions, I think a lot of them are driven by the following, which has since been cured by an amendment to the rule. A lot of them involve situations where the Court of Appeals was thinking and looking at the record and thinking the debtor was engaging in some kind of misrepresentation or manipulation. And as, as Justice Stevens pointed out um, in his concurrence in Taylor, you know, there's this, what about this problem? Is, are there 105 powers? Are there, is there authority for the bankruptcy court to basically act if you have a bas basically bad-acting debtor? Now the current version of Rule 4003 makes an exception for fraud. If there were bad things that happened, that's been taken care of now under the rule. But we shouldn't assume that, and certainly not in this case. Ms. Riley was perfectly honest and straightforward. She set forth everything that the forms required. They're really — No, there let, are comparable circuit court opinions in situations very analogous to this one, where the circuit courts have looked at what the trustee and the debtor have done during the process. And if the debtor has not made it clear that they're seeking the full value of the property, as happened here, there was a conversation that the value was off, the debtor did not tell the trustee that she was claiming the full amount of the property. And there are analogous situations where the circuits have said, no, that doesn't show your intent because you didn't articulate it to the trustee in the informal meetings. That's not an irrational conclusion by those circuits. It's not an irrational conclusion, except it is one that is contrary to the statutory scheme. It basically says to the trustee, you need not object by the 30 days if you want to sell the property. No, what it says is if you're engaged in good faith negotiation over value um, or over the claimed exemption, you should, both sides should be open about it. Yes, but Justice Sotomayor, it is the filing of the objection that triggers the negotiation. And this is key. This is, this is really quite key. Because the practice is that if the trustee exempts to the prop, exempts, uh, I'm sorry, objects to the valuation, then there is a court hearing. 
and the court will resolve the objection if the parties can't negotiate it afterwards. And if Most of these cases, the objections are the, the discussions are not at the time of objection. They're at the time of the creditors' meeting. It is part of the discussion. That's what the courts are looking to. What's happening between the parties? Have they made their intent clear, and what does that intent reflect? But if there is no objection, then there's no involvement of the court, and the conversation stops. And the reason why you have the objection is because the trustee has the burden of coming forward and demonstrating that the debtor's valuation is wrong. And that's important because when the trustee is now saying, oh, I just need to sell, I don't have to object, the trustee is evading his burden of proof by just simply saying, I'm authorized to sell, I am going to sell, as as long as it's not the debtor who doesn't object. The trustee's proposal inverts the burden of proof. It's now under the trustee's proposal, when the trustee files a motion to sell, the debtor has to come forward and object and now say, wait, I have a valuable exemption here. What what the trustee then has done is simply said, I don't have to comply with my burden of proof that's set by the rule and the statute. After all, Section 522L puts the burden on the trustee as well to object. So they are inverting the burden of proof, and Congress and the rules have put the burden of proof completely in the opposite way. And again, we need that that finality. The trustee would basically have, under his proposal, an ability to file a motion to sell a year later, two years later, four years later, by reopening a case that's been closed, if the trustee thought that. Our whole point about finality, which was a key principle animating the decision below, and also this Court's decision in Taylor, where the Court made the observation that although these deadlines may yield in some situations unwelcome results, they serve very important finality interests. The debtor needs to know, is this my property? But Can I t- use it? this debtor did know at the creditors' meeting, she certainly knew that the trustee was claiming the property was worth more than what she listed it as being worth. She could have at that point so she had the notice of what he was thinking. She could have at that point said, I will remove as many items as necessary to bring me safely within the limit. She didn't do that. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Instead, she said, this, the trustee wants to sell all of the property. He's filing them. He filed a motion to sell all of it. The trustee did not give her an opportunity to do that allocation, which she would have had if the trustee had filed an objection. In responding to the objection, she could have said, well, I'm only going to allocate something because the objection would have been under the exemption rules, whereas the trustee, when the trustee filed a motion to sell, it was under 363, which is the motion to sell rules, where the debtor would then have had to come forward and object to the motion for some reason. But again, you don't have that allocation option under Section 363. And again, the trustee puts the cart before the horse. The trustee cannot sell property unless it is property of the estate. And under Section 522, if, in fact, the debtor claims property as exempt, there's no exemption, uh, no objection. It is exempt. And therefore, it's not property of the estate. Exempt means exempt from property of the estate. The trustee cannot sell. Congress set up this regime purposefully to have judicial determinations of exemptions right away, and that, again, is triggered by an objection being filed. That way we know at the beginning of the case, does the debtor have the property? Can she use it? Can she continue? Third parties, can they rely on that? Or is this something the trustee is going to be able to sell? Now, it's important also because the practice in bankruptcy, as reflected in the Collier forms, is that 
the bankruptcy court can make a judicial determination. Say, for example, the bankruptcy court here had said, I think there is some merit to the trustee's uh, objection. The property is worth $12,000. The practice, as reflected in the sample form, is for the court then to say to the debtor, debtor, if you want to keep this property, give the trustee a check for the difference between what you're entitled to claim and what I'm establishing the value to be. That can happen if an objection to the exemption is filed and we're under Section 522 exemptions. That can't happen if we're under Section 362 sales. So, again, the trustee's rule eliminates that established practice and that established option in favor of the debtor. Also, the debtor could say, could reallocate. The debtor has the right under the rules, under Rule 1009, to reallocate her her exemptions after the trustee has — she could have sacrificed some other area or something and taken — taken her um, additional exemption availability somewhere and applied it, all those options are foreclosed where the trustee doesn't file an objection and the trustee moves to sell uh, instead. Now, I see my time has not expired if there are no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Goldblatt, two minutes. Thank you. Um, I have two points, one practical and one about what the the forms here mean. First, as a practical matter, the task of liquidating and selling the the assets of the estate is the work that is done throughout the bankruptcy case. Mr. Brunstad's suggestion that historically that there was a deadline applied to the work of liquidating the estate is simply Incorrect. And in response to Justice Breyer's question, you asked, where do I turn to find out how hard it is to simply extend the deadline? The answer to that question with respect to the 341 meeting is page 7-7 of the U.S. Trustee's Manual, which says quite clearly that such extensions should be granted only under exceptional circumstances, and the trustee should not continue the 341 meeting when the debtor appears at that meeting. So we have a real practical problem of basically undermining Congress's judgment about giving the trustee adequate time to liquidate the assets for the benefit of creditors. With respect to what these schedules mean and whether the debtor was claiming an in-kind exemption, um, Chief Justice uh, Robert, you had it right when you said, you know, when the debtor files what the value of the property is worth is unclear. The debtor doesn't know when they file what this will obtain at auction. The debtor is giving an estimate. The question is whether one should read these forms to say, if it turns out that my estimate is wrong, I want that anyway, or if, the, if, or if you'd read these forms to say, if it turns out that my estimate is wrong, all I want is what Congress gave me. And we think that one shouldn't lightly impute to the debtor um, a claim to be making an improper and unlawful claim to keep the thing itself when Congress quite clearly gave the debtor a, a monetary interest. And finally, with respect to the, the question of allocation, the, the debtor can at any time, Justice Ginsburg, reallocate, including after the motion to sell, their schedules. Rule 1009 says you can amend as a matter of course. So there is still the opportunity to give the debtor exactly what Congress intended. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.